Welcome to the Shadron Berean Church Podcast, where you'll find some of the latest teachings from Shadron Berean Church in Shadron, Nebraska. We are a loving community of believers growing in God's grace in Christ together. The heartbeat of our church is to have deep roots in the Word of God and to bear fruit by passionately applying it to our lives by His power for His glory. And we thank you for joining us. moments in our lives where we felt abandoned by God, yeah? Um, when we feel like maybe God was silent in our lives. Um, throughout the centuries, disciples of Jesus Christ have felt the same way as they suffer hardship and persecution for their faith. And some of the earliest Christians uh, like that like the Christians that, that Mark, the writer of the Gospel of Mark, is writing to, they're no exception. They're no exception. Uh, they too were shaken up with uh, many persecutions in their lives, uh, plagued with troubling questions, you know, where is God in all of this? You have to remember, these, these people are in, in Rome, likely under Nero, maybe undergoing severe, intense persecution, losing their, losing their loved ones, that sort of thing. Where, where is God in all of this? And if God is so good, right, why the suffering? Is this, is this normal for Christians? Should we give up when it gets hard? Is this what it means to follow Jesus? Remember the Christian movements. Not very old at this point, maybe 30 years old, 20 to 30 years old, maybe 40 at the most. Mark is writing to answer those kinds of troubling questions for these Christians. He's readying them to face persecution by showing us that if we see Jesus clearly, if we understand who he is and what he's done for us, we should be willing to follow him until the end, no matter what comes our way. And that's Sort of where we're going to go this evening as we reflect on the precious words of Jesus that he spoke on the cross. Um, Last words are always important, but no last words are so precious and so significant as Jesus' words. Um, His final words on the cross help us understand uh, what was going on in that incredible moment, the greatest moment in the history of the world. And uh, uh, tonight, it's a, it's a dark, dark moment. It's a dark moment. Uh, if I could give this sermon a title, I would call it The Real Black Friday. It's a good Friday, but it's also a very dark one. Let's look at Mark 15, 33 through 39. It says, When the sixth hour came, um, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, okay, so that the sixth hour was noon, the ninth hour, three, and he's been on the cross since nine in the morning. But at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, Behold, he's calling for Elijah. 
And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave, it, gave him a drink, saying, Let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry, and he breathed his last. I think those last folks there were just kind of mocking him some more with sar- sarcastic comments about Elijah. But he utters a loud cry, and he breathes his last. And then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who was standing right in front of him, saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. So, pretty remarkable account. Uh, already in our Easter series, we've, we've looked at two of Jesus' final sayings on the cross. We've looked at the word of forgiveness. We've looked at the word of salvation. And tonight we're going to skip one uh, chronologically and instead look at the fourth saying, which is so relevant to Good Friday. Um, We'll look at the third and uh, some of the rest on Sunday, uh, mostly in the Gospel of John. But uh, this one right here we could call the word of abandonment. A word of abandonment. Uh, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he's quoting Psalm 22, verse 1. And that word forsaken should stand out, I think, just because it tells us how Jesus is feeling. It tells us what is really happening, I think, beyond the the physical sufferings of the cross. Remember, the the physical suffering on the cross is is not the, the only or the... Uh, primary suffering. It's actually the spiritual suffering. That is the worst suffering that he's experiencing. And we'll look at that. The worst, or the word forsaken also stands out to us because this is one of the most appalling words in our language, isn't it? Forsaken. It has a, a touch of woe, woe of judgment attached to it, doesn't it? So a God-forsaken city, what do you think of? That's a doomed city. Um, a God-forsaken land is a land that is barren, it's desolate, it's dry, it doesn't see a drop of rain. It's dead. Nothing grows there. A man forsaken by his, his friends, a wife forsaken by her husband, a child forsaken by his parents are all pictures of terrible injustice in our minds. This is an ugly, ugly, ugly word. Maybe you can relate to that word, unfortunately. I think we all can, a little bit, forsaken. And Mark's original audience, you better believe they, they can relate to this word with what they're going through. Only Matthew and Mark, this is interesting, only Matthew and Mark record this saying. And it's actually the only saying that they record in their gospel accounts. And, and, and we can look at, at why. We've been studying uh, why these gospel writers, we've been looking at their authorial intent, right? Why the gospel writers would choose only one or two or three of these sayings rather than all seven of them, right? Well, because they only choose the sayings that, that actually support their purpose in writing that gospel. So they're not just recording all the history that they know. They're, they're omitting and including certain elements and details to support their overall intent, their overall purpose in writing. Okay? So it's like a, a historical narrative story that's teaching us theology. It's a big concept, but uh, it's an important one. And, and Matthew, uh, 
So he records this saying only, I think, because he's all about the kingdom of God. Kingdom of God this, kingdom of God that, king, 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 king. That's all he talks about. And he, what he shows us at the end is that the king of Israel has been rejected. He's been forsaken, the king of God, or the kingdom of, of, of God, the king of the kingdom is rejected, just like the prophets predicted. Uh, Mark, he, he, he does it to make us understand that, the, that Jesus really is forsaken. He, he wants to emphasize the, the loneliness and the desertedness that Jesus experienced. All the disciples, remember, they're, they're called in, in chapter 1, basically. And they've been following him all this time. And in chapter 14, where are they? After the Garden of Gethsemane, they all split. They run. Even Peter. Peter says, I think, and it's like in Mark chapter 12, I'll, I'll never deny you. I don't care if anybody else does. I'm never going to deny you, Lord. Where's Peter? He's gone. Nobody's at the cross in Mark's gospel other than the centurion. They've left Jesus. They've deserted him. They've abandoned him. They've forsaken him. Mark even shares in his gospel, remember this, this somewhat humorous detail about a young man who, um, instead of forsaking everything, even his own life to follow Jesus, he forsakes everything not to follow Jesus, even his own clothes. You remember that? He chose shame over suffering for Christ. So they weren't willing to take up their cross and follow him like he said in Mark 8, 37. Mark 8 is a, a pivotal chapter in his gospel. Remember, he heals a blind man in two stages. Two stages. Um, he partially heals him. The guy's like, Jesus says, do you see clearly? And he's like, I see people like trees walking around. I don't really know what I'm seeing. And so Jesus puts another touch of healing on him, and he finally sees clearly. Well, um, that incident, and there's a big, there's a big emphasis on, on healing the ears, like hearing and, and blindness, especially blindness in, in Mark's gospel. There's an emphasis on healing blind people because the disciples are blind. We're blind, typically. So he, he partially heals this blind man. Then he asks G Peter right after this, uh, Peter, or Peter, who do you say that I am? And, and Peter says, you're the Christ. Well, Mark wrote this gospel to reveal Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He only put in half of it there. It's only a half statement. The centurion at the end here in verse uh, 39 of chapter 15 says, this is the Son of God. And so the, the testimony is not complete until then. They're all, they, don't, they don't understand yet. They only, they only see the victorious Messiah coming on the clouds. They only see the second coming Messiah. They don't see the first, first coming Messiah where he comes to suffer. They're still partially blind to that. They're trying to stop him from going to the cross. So Peter's kind of like the blind man who's partially healed. And I think that's, um, that it's only after the cross where Peter sees clearly and he's like, okay, I'm willing, to, I'm willing to follow now. I'm, I'm willing not just to be a Lord in, in His kingdom. I'm willing to be a suffering servant for God. No matter what that looks like. So that's kind of the intent. If we see, the emphasis is on seeing, if we see Jesus for who He really is, 
If we understand who he is, we understand what he has done for us, then that in turn means we should likely, we should follow him until the end, right? If we see him for who he really is, we should follow him until the end. So we should become suffering servants like the Savior. If we really understand who he is and what he's done, what else is there to live for ultimately? We follow him until the end. That's what Mark's trying to encourage his, his, his readers to understand. But uh, instead of disciples around Jesus, remember, remember, remember uh, it was James and John, they said, you know, we'll sit on your right hand, we'll sit on your left hand when you come into your kingdom, right? Well, who's on his right and who's on his left now? Two criminals, pseudo-disciples, right? Not James and John, they deserted him. Jesus is abandoned. That's something that suffering Christians can relate to. Hebrews tells us it was fitting for the, you know, to perfect the author of salvation through sufferings. He had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a, a merciful and faithful high priest who is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Again, we don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are and yet without sin. So we take home a, a glorious truth here. Jesus can relate to our sufferings. And this is important, isn't it? Because we need to know God has ultimately experienced and dealt with the terrible injustices of this life. So that one day our suffering will end just like his suffering ended. He tasted it. When we go through hardships, we know our God is, is you know, he's not some far off distant God who can't relate. We have a God who's been there, who's done that, who's been in our shoes and even more so than us. He's Isaiah 53 is great. It says, it says He has borne our griefs and our sorrows. He's felt our pain. Sometimes that's all you need. You need someone to feel your pain. And because of that, we know how much He cares. Okay, One man said, A God who cannot suffer cannot love. If God can't suffer, He can't love. God suffers because He wills. To love. I think it was a Diedrich Bonhoeffer, I'm not sure, but he chose to suffer for us because he loves us. Okay. But while we're never forsaken and, and we're we're forever secure in the Father's hands, Jesus really was forsaken this this evening. And that's that's why this I think is the only place where Jesus calls the Father God. Throughout the Gospels, remember especially John. <laughs> Jesus is constantly talking about his father, his father, his father. He's so connected to the father. He's in sync with the father. Whatever the father does, he does that. He can't do anything but what the father, he sees the father doing. Remember this? I and the father are one. He's never out of sync with the father, but now it's not the father. It's, it's God. Don't you want to say that sometimes when you're suffering? It's kind of hard to call him Father. You just say, God, if you're there. Why is that? Why is he only calling God? Because he's really forsaken. Even though God is in complete control, right? God is in complete control. We're going to look at that in John on Sunday, Lord willing. Even though God's in control, the Gospels say that he's handed over multiple times. He's given over, he's handed over into the hands of sinners. 
for 12 hours. And what do they do with him? They torture him for 12 hours. And justice from beginning to end. It, it, it isn't until his dying breath that he commits himself back into the hands of the Father, the place of eternal security. And so the, the darkness that falls on the land implies this, that he's been handed over, that he's, he's, he's been forsaken. Darkness speaks of judgment, doesn't it? You think it's something, darkness. Don't you think of judgment? And, and, and biblically, you should think of that. You should think of the absence of God's presence, the absence of His light. Hell is described as a place of outer darkness. We should probably recall on the night of the first Passover in Egypt, remember when it said darkness fell over the land? It was a darkness that could be felt. You know, this isn't this isn't normal type of darkness. This is a darkness you can you can feel it. We don't we don't really know what this darkness was. Uh, the Bible just says the sun was obscured somehow. It's too long for an eclipse. If it was an eclipse and it lasted longer uh, than a few minutes, it was purely supernatural to hold it there in place. It was probably more than an eclipse. It was more than just clouds. It, the, I mean, the sun's light just, just failed. No more sun. I think creation itself was mourning the death of the Creator for three hours from noon until 3 p.m. You know, the moment when the sun is usually the highest in the sky, it goes black. Can you imagine that? I've been, I've been thinking about this all day. Today I made myself more aware of this. I set my alarms at noon and at three. Three hours without sunlight would have been a long, awkward, weird, and creepy time. Okay. I, here's what I did in three hours. I went home. I ate lunch. I took a long shower. Um... For some reason, I don't normally do that. But I woke up late for uh, men's, men's Bible study this morning. <laughs> so, so anyway, I'm home, I eat lunch, I take a shower, hang out with the family a little bit, figure out what I'm wearing tonight, decided I'd wear black. <laughs> Stopped by a friend's house, talked with him for a while, went back to church, got communion stuff ready, went through my message again. Three hours would have been a long time for it to be dark. I would have been doing that whole thing with lights on and with my headlights on. In the middle of the day. How weird would that have been? You guys, you guys were at the, clip, the eclipse, right? I mean, if you didn't go anywhere, you were. It only lasted for three minutes. It was weird. It was creepy. The crickets started chirping. The animals didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to do. Imagine that for three hours, and even more so. It was so weird. I mean, think about this. Back in the day, people had to be lighting candles in the middle of the day. I imagine someone looking into the sky with fear saying, Where is the sun? What is happening? 
And, and someone turns to them and they say, I don't know, but this can't be good. It's been three hours. The animals don't even know what to do anymore. Why are the crickets chirping? Is this the end? Like, is the world going to come to an end or what? what? My kids won't quit crying. They're scared to death. They're terrified. Are we going to die? Three hours in the middle of the day, it goes black. What a moment. I think it should almost bring us to tears to think about what is really happening in this moment. The Lamb of God is being slain. His blood is being poured out. His blood is coming out. It's hitting the ground and He's drinking in a cup of wrath. Blood is coming out. Wrath is being drank in. in. It's being drunk. The wrath that we deserve. He becomes sin for us so that by his substitutionary death we could become the righteousness and the of God in him so that the he 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 drinks the wrath that we deserve he becomes sin so that the judgment of God could pass over us like at the first passover whoever applied the blood to their doorposts in that dark night were passed over in God's judgment if we don't trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, we don't see Him for who He really is, and we, we, we accept Him as our Savior, that judgment ain't going to pass over us. We're not covered by the blood of the Lamb. But thank God that we are, because uh, those of us who have trusted in Christ, we've come to faith in Christ. Uh, so, the Son of the Father, this is neat, took the place of Barabbas, which means son of a father. That's what he does with us. We, we could all basically be Barabbas. He takes our place. Barabbas should have been on that cross. I should have been on that cross. Instead, Jesus is. He is the one who is cast into outer darkness so that we could enter in within the veil. It's amazing. He was abandoned, we could say, so that we could be adopted. You guys know adoption is one of the most godly things you can ever do in your life. Isaac Watts wrote this. Well might the sun in darkness hide and shut his glories in when Christ the great maker died for man the creature's sin. Over the years I've also noticed how careful scholars are when they try to describe what happened on this during these three hours. Um, seeming at best not to say that there was a, a fundamental break in the unity of the Trinity but uh, more like just a, a break in fellowship between the Father and the Son. Does that make sense? So the Trinity didn't split in two. It was a break in fellowship between the Father and the Son. And whatever, guys, whatever was mysteriously going on, Jesus paid for our sins in full. That we know. That we know. His love and His holiness, His justice and His mercy, they all met right there on the cross for us and perfectly satisfied God's nature so that we could spend eternity with Him. It's an amazing thing to contemplate. He became sin so that we could become His righteousness. What an exchange. They call that the great exchange. And uh, this climactic moment on the cross I'm excited to show you is 
I think, emphasized in Mark chapter 15 with a chiastic structure. And we've kind of been looking at this recently, right? The A, B, C, D thing. A, B, C, D, C, B, A. So um, whatever lands in the middle of the structure, that's the, that is it. That's the climax of it. This is the literary structure. Check this out. Uh, this is why the cross is awesome. This is why your Bible is awesome. So it starts off here. The first few verses with the Roman procurator questioning King Jesus. It ends with letter A, a Roman centurion acknowledging Jesus is the Son of God. Crowd calls for crucifixion. We release Barabbas, a substitutional son of a father. Letter B ends with the Son of the Father forsaken, implying substitution in our place. Letter C, the soldiers mock the king. Same thing, passerbys, religious leaders, everybody's mocking him. Right here, the climax, Jesus is crucified between two pseudo-disciples. Not the disciples, but criminals. There's a, a climax there on the cross. And even though this is such a dark, dark moment, it's a climactic moment of victory too. Mark intends for us uh, not only to see the suffering, but to see the victory that, that can be found in sufferings. Not all is lost in our sufferings. It's actually in our sufferings that Paul says in Romans 8 that we overwhelmingly conquer in these things. And uh, that's one of Mark's trademarks. In Mark, it's the deserts and the tombs. Remember how many times we visited like tombs and, and graveyards in Mark? Wasn't that weird? Deserts? Those are places of temptation and death and demons. Whenever Jesus went to these places, it was demons there. And he had to cast them out. But when Christ enters, right, they become paradoxically places of life and resurrection. It's amazing. Okay, many times in this chapter, Jesus' kingship, his, his victory is emphasized in just five verses. There are carefully chosen details. It's Mark 15, 16 through 21 that evoke this picture of a king's triumphal procession. There's a commencement at the praetorium. So they commence it. So this is like a king's, a king's uh, royal procession after a victorious win. They have a commencement. There's an attendance of a Roman cohort, just like a king might have. He's clothed in purple, which is outlawed for others. He's hailed as a king. He is... Uh, then led in procession. And then in some Roman monuments, there would have been an official who accompanied that king with a sacrificial bull. Who's with him as he takes the cross? Simon of Cyrene, with the sacrifice, walking in procession there. No doubt, Simon of Cyrene pictured that. And then there's wine. Wine would have been offered to the king, just like it is here. Kings would also go to a hill like the Temple of Jupiter, and in Rome, where they'd be representative with two of their leading advisors. There's two criminals at Jesus' side. There's a, there's a victorious king pictured here. Such an amazing piece of literature, I can't even... It's, it's mind-blowing. And even though the disciples have failed, if you just turn to the next chapter, <laughs> Mark chapter 16, it shows us their restoration, right? Jesus rises from the dead. The angel says to them, He is going ahead of you to Galilee. Go follow him. 
Get back to following Jesus. Re-answer the call to follow him, just like you did in chapter 1. You, you started following him in chapter 1, now it's chapter 16. Get back to following him. And that's a hope that I think all disciples have in the journey of discipleship. We can, you know, it doesn't matter how many times we fail. And we feel like we're going to sit on the bench the rest of our life. Jesus doesn't want that for you. Get up and resume the journey of following him. And just in closing, I want to share an excerpt from Luther's book, Cries from the Cross. There's a story about a pilgrim um, making his way to the promised land. He was carrying his master's cross, a burden he cheerfully accepted. However, he soon noticed that the farther he walked, the heavier it became. And as the pilgrim became weary, he sat down to rest, and he noticed a, a woodsman nearby, and he said, Good friend, could I use your axe to shorten my cross? It's mighty heavy. And so the woodsman complied, and the pilgrim chops off part of his cross, and he travels on, and he's making better progress now. His cross was shorter, his burden was lighter. And soon the promised land was in sight. Drawing near, however, he noticed there was a deep gulf that separated him from the glories beyond. He would use the cross to span that chasm. And though he struggled mightily to lay the cross across that deep rift, it fell short by the very amount that he had cut off. Just then the pilgrim awoke, and it was a dream. And now with tears in his face, he clutched his cross to his breast, and he pressed on. The cross was just as heavy, but now he bore it with more joy. He would endure all the way to the promised land. Of course, we don't enter heaven because we carry a heavy cross, but by trusting Christ alone for our salvation. But that said, we as the redeemed are called to carry our cross if we are to have an abundant entrance into the heavenly realms. Blessed are those who carry its full weight. I think tonight as we take communion, we're reminded of the, the great cost of salvation. Salvation is free to us, but it costs Jesus greatly. And the proper response to the cross is trusting in Him. Putting all of your faith in Him. Not trusting ourselves, only what He did on the cross. But we're also reminded of the proper response to salvation then, right? And it's the great cost of discipleship, following Jesus. And uh, we're also reminded of his restorative graces that are always there to lift us when we fail in the journey, when we trip and stumble, and we need to get back up and follow him.